Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wemcast. I'm joined today, hailing from Salisbury in the UK, by Joe Bradshaw. How are you, Joe? Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for asking me. It's a it's a real pleasure to uh, to be involved. So thank you very much, Will. No worries, no worries. Uh, so Joe's a very experienced expedition leader, outdoor instructor, and mountaineer. She's very close to completing the seven summits. She works closely with young people supporting the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, uh, and she teaches youngsters, in her words, that there's more life than an iPhone, more to life than an iPhone. She travels around the UK giving talks to groups and business on resilience and never giving up and is proudly raising funds for the charity Place to Be that advocates for children's mental health. She's a proud dog parent, two Springer, Springer Spaniels, Daisy and Lily. Anything there I've missed, Jo? Uh, no, I think that's it, actually. Yeah, although I'm currently a Tesco's delivery driver. So there you go. Are you? <laughs> ah, so yes. doing your bit during the during the lockdown. I am. Um, yes. Yeah, there's, there's no such thing as a selfless act. So I needed a job because all of my work is cancelled and uh and I live on my own so I'm not bringing anything back home to anybody um or taking anything out so yeah it's uh, it's worked out well that's amazingly adaptable uh so you, yeah. how many deliveries are you doing a day at the moment um well I've got uh I work for sort of I do two long shifts so I do a nine till seven Monday and Saturday and we do uh, runs in the morning and the afternoon. And then on Wednesdays, I do a 9 till... No, I don't. I do a 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, and then Thursdays, I do a 2 till 11. So again, we've, we're out for two blocks of time for that. So uh, I was out yesterday and we did about 10 drops in the morning and about 15 in the afternoon. So wow, yeah, it's pretty... certainly keeping me fit. That's anyway, a hectic schedule. Yeah. It is, it is. And, you know, going out to all the villages around Salisbury and, you know, you're loading up the van three times a day with half a ton of food or more and then taking it all out again. So, uh, yeah, over and above all the fizz I'm trying to do at home, it's, uh, it's certainly keeping me active, which is great. Great. Uh, so it uh, sounds like uh, loading carry bags full of veg into old ladies' houses is not that different from loading <laughs> duffel bags onto an aeroplane yeah. on, on, a, on a big adventure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think all of my uh, trips with Discover Adventure and humping people's bags onto on and off trucks and in and out of hotels is actually yeah. uh, good good preparation instead for this for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and I've had the pleasure of working on two uh, commercial overseas treks with you, Joe. Uh, I think we've been up Kili, Kilimanjaro together and, and Everest Base Camp. Yes, indeed, indeed we have, and they were both uh, fantastic and challenging in their in their own particular rights as well. So yeah, it was it was great to have your experience there, but also to show you the mountains and what it's like uh, being being out there as well. Yeah, it was fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, the first the first trip, the Kilimanjaro trip, that was my first gig, actually, as an expedition medic. And you you took me under your wing. So I've always been indebted to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my pleasure. You wouldn't the only you wouldn't have known that it was your first one, apart from the old sunglasses. Can I tell oh, yeah. people about the sunglasses? Tell, tell me about the, the sunglasses, Joe. Remind me. So the sunglasses. So on the kit list, it advises clients to have wraparound sunglasses of um, category four. 
because the UV rays are, are much stronger up at altitude and it and the, the wraparounds, you know, really help any light getting in from the side. So bless you, you turn up with sort of fashion Ray-Bans, I think they were. Were they Ray-Bans? Yeah. They were kind of pro- yeah, um, Primark so... Ray-Bans, you know, yeah. <laughs> it weren't even real Ray-Bans. Fantastic. So after the second day in the afternoon, we had a bit of a rest at camp. And, you know, I went and had a sleep. And I know Cambers, who we were working with, who's my assistant, had a bit of a sort of mountain wash and got himself looking uh, sort of presentable again. And, and you actually refashioned your sunglasses with duct tape to put side pieces on and uh and they worked really well (laughs) you wouldn't even know that they weren't proper side pieces so that's where the adaptability of our medics really impresses me so yeah thank you for that (laughs) yeah well you know joe i i've i'm not really keen on people who have all the gear and no idea i'd much rather have (laughs) none of the gear and no idea and um, yeah. I, I'm glad that everyone and could that see was... that I created a unique piece of eyewear that was, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, a world first absolutely. on any and, mountain. And you, yeah, absolutely. And you came to Nepal with, I think, category three wraparounds. So we, we'd moved on a stage and I lent you my spare pair of category four wraparounds and you commented on how much of a difference that's the extra category for the for the UV rays make. So I think it's uh I think learning by doing is really important and taking on board that. So yeah. <laughs> you did a good job. Absolutely. Doc. I've every trip, every day of every trip I've done, I've been schooled uh, in something new. And on that occasion <laughs> it's just the amount of schooled, the sheer yeah. amount of light at altitude. It just completely oh. fries your eyes, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I I mean, I wear my sunglasses, my Category 4 wraparounds, even when it's cloudy, to the point, you know, when the rain comes, then obviously they come off. And I advise clients to do as well, because I remember on one Kilimanjaro trip, it was snowy um, up the top. I think it was snowy with ours as well, but snowy up the top. And I had to stop on the way down and help a client who was in need of some medical attention. And I took my sunglasses off and it was sunny and glary. And I had snow blindness, not to the bit where you can't see anything, but the pain was unbelievable. So, and that was 10 minutes without sunglasses in that environment. So it's so, you know, and I think because I can now use that example for clients to say, I've done it. Um, please don't, because I can tell you it's super bad for you and really painful. So, uh, yeah, my doctor at the time, she was quite straightforward. No, she said, you whinge a lot when you're not well. I was like, thanks. <laughs> it's very painful. <laughs> so, yeah. And not, yeah, I've, not I've done a, well, a so. I've done a lot, a lot of surf trips in uh tropical places where the sun is very bright you can't really wear sunglasses in those places so i've i've i felt like i'd kind of adapted to the intense light but that's clearly not the case your eyes just don't suddenly develop a, a protective film over them so i definitely advise anyone going up into high places alpine uh snow environments that, that the amount of light is so powerful you've got to have the right the right kit yeah definitely yeah, learn sure. the hard way or the easy way sure. it's up to you yeah you do. every day is a school day yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely 
Yeah. And I, I, I remember our that Killy summit, that particular summit was was quite a long one. I think it was 16 hours from the point that we left the, the final camp uh, about 11 o'clock at night to the point that we got all the group back uh, to 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 camp that evening. Uh, it was it was a monster. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, it's funny because when I first did it in 2008 and I'd never really done I was assistant on that trip and I hadn't really done anything of that length of day and, and particularly not walking overnight. Um, and it's hard. It, and I, I've done 35 summit. Well, I've done 33 summits, but 35 expeditions. And it's still hard because you know what's ahead of you and you know there's a long time at night and you know it's going to be a long day. And I've actually had a 23 and a half hour day once when I had a client who um, pulled a muscle in his back. Um, he happened to be the tallest, biggest person I've ever taken up the mountain. Muscularly, not 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 fat, but um, it was a long day. And you just get through it because you know it will end at some point. And I think for me, building up those years of experience has, you know, I, I've got the confidence to say to clients and hopefully they believe me is, it will finish. You are going to get to bed at some point. And when we get to back to Barafu after the summit rotation, and then you get an hour's rest or something, and then you have to go down. And I get to people saying, I can't walk and I can't go any further. It's like, yes, you can. You need to get up and trust me, the walk will do you good. And then you will sleep much better lower down. So, but it's a monster. Yeah. It is indeed. Wow. So, uh, does it get any easier after 35 Killy summits? Um, I think, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, in a way, because I know what is coming up and I know how people are going to react. Um, and people react at various different stages because, you know, we're not, we're not all built the same as you clearly know. Um, and I know some people aren't going to listen to the advice and some people listen to it absolutely but still everybody can get altitude sickness at some point. And it's explaining to people that it's not a disease or a thing or an illness, you know, it's a range of symptoms. And um, because people say, have you ever had altitude sickness? I'm like, yeah, of course I have. I've had headaches. I've been sick a few times. Um, I've had nausea. I've had the lethargy. I've had the dizziness. I've had all of that in varying stages. Um, and one time on my second ascent I had to be turned around by the doctor um which was an absolute killer because I got quite serious altitude sickness and I couldn't I got up to about 5,500 meters and I was the yeah. walking dead and she turned me around yeah. and sent me down and I'm human you know yeah absolutely it's always interesting me and you've, you've we've talked about this before but the clients always ask us don't they uh they're they're kind of what happens if you get sick, you know, the, as the leader or the doc, you know, who's going to who's going to take care of us? And you just have to say, well, hey, look, we're, we're not immortal. We're, we're human just like you are. Yeah. And that, that could happen. Yeah, it does. Uh, and that's for me is instilling the trust in my local team as well. It's so important. I am not the only one in charge there. So when I'm guiding with any company now, it's so important that a, I have trust in my local team and I, I've worked with many of them for many years and that I have a good relationship with them and the clients see that and I involve everybody. And I say to from the start, we are one team. There's not me at the head 
and then everyone else, we are all on a level. We're all co-pilots because, for example, um, last October, I got tonsillitis on the first day. I started getting a very bad throat infection and then it sort of got worse and worse. And I couldn't talk, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink. And I had to stay at Barafu, which is the sort of base camp. And my team, my local team, took my group up in some pretty tricky weather conditions and brought them all back down safely. And I knew that my team, my clients would be safe and I knew my team would be safe. And actually that I am there as as sort of backup and encouragement on summit night. I'm not the one that's going to get them to the top. They, they're the ones that, that will. So, And that's having trust in your team. And instilling the trust in your clients as well. It's so important. I've seen it so many times where the, the UK or the Western leader is the be all and end all. And you can't be. You absolutely yeah. can't be. So that's you know. really, really interesting. And jo. doctors get sick too. Yeah. So you really flatten the hierarchy uh, and um, you're empowering other people to be able to step in. Uh, when perhaps you you know anticipating that there are going to be times when you're not going to be a- able to to make decisions and and uh, and lead lead the team, but you, you know that you've got the right people around you and that they're able to do that and and they've got permission 100%. to to do that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because it's not just if if I get ill, but you know if I'm if I don't have a a doctor on my expeditions and I'm the the trip medic, then I I'm the one at the back, and then if I have to deal with any medical issues and the team go ahead I don't want my clients thinking oh my god Joe's not here we're not going to make it you know you can't instill that type of um, hierarchy or philosophy philosophy on an expedition it just it's crazy and I I get very frustrated when I see that in other groups because you're actually failing your clients at that point you know you need to be able to educate them and give them enough confidence that they are doing this by them not by themselves but as a team and that they're pulling everybody else's experience and uh you know trust together and I'm the one that helps make that gel but I'm not I'm definitely not the glue for it everybody does it you know Everybody yeah, does it so that, that, that shows real uh, humility and, and self-awareness. Um, so you're normally spending many months of the year on the road overseas in various airport terminals, uh, but currently you're in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. How is that? How is it for you adjusting to, to this change of pace? Um, it, good and bad. I was actually, uh, so where were we? The 7th of April today and I am supposed to be in Nepal, um, with a group with 360 expeditions and we were supposed to be trekking to Everest Base Camp and then climbing Island Peak. Um, and 360 were also, they had a, a Everest group out, so they're supposed to be on the north side. You know, they probably would have got to base camp in the next week or so. And obviously everyone else's expeditions have been cancelled, but I know the mountains will be there. For me, losing the work has been a huge kick. Um, but I have the ability to go and get another job, which I have. My concerns are with our local um, local crew, and I know they're being looked after, so that's good. And my clients as well. You know, this is I've had expeditions cancelled on me, and we we'll talk a bit about the earthquake and when things suddenly stop. So it's 
trying to look on the bright side in this really dark time. You know, I I live on my own. I can go to work. I'm not bringing the virus back to anybody else here. We're trying to practice social distancing in a very busy supermarket. Um, yeah, so it's hard. And I'm doing what I can to, you know, I have my down days like everybody does. And I sort of allow myself to to have that because I think it's a natural process. I think if you're constantly up and happy and, you know, everything is 100% positive, there is there's something not quite you're shielding something so yeah it's just being honest with yourself you know and actually I was talking to a good friend no go on I was just going to say I just think that's great to show some self-compassion some kindness to to yourself and and allow yourself to feel those uh, emotions because we are all only human and and anyone that pretends that they're uh, flying, uh, you know, a uh, hundred miles an hour and, and loving life every minute of every day is is definitely lying to everyone else and themselves. I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, I had a chat with a very good adventure friend of mine last night, and and I said, "How are you dealing with it?" And obviously, for both of us, the money because we're self employed, it's it's hard. But he said, "I'm actually really loving being in one place for longer than a couple of days." <laughs> I I get that you know when I'm in between expeditions I come home I have my dogs but I'm usually exhausted and either recovering from an expedition and then getting ready for another one so I don't ever really I've got so many projects on the go at home that are just started half finished haven't really done them as best I want to but now I have the time to do them I'm you know i painted my bathroom the other day I've lived in my house for four and a half years it took an afternoon it's not difficult but it's having the energy and the and the want to to do it you know so yeah it's and I the thing I'm finding hardest is not having my dogs here um they're with my mum to keep her company and it means that I can work um at Tesco but uh it's you know short-term pain yeah and um i mean the whole kind of expedition adventure industry is effectively uh, unable to operate at at the moment and this is on the back of brexit when a lot of uk-based companies were facing a reduced uh, power of the pound and you know so there's huge challenges to to the livelihoods of all the people that work in this industry do do you think things are you know how long is it going to take for for things to recover and if they do will, will we really be able to get back to, to how things were gosh it's, it's a kind of crystal ball question that I'm not really sure because I've just had some work uh I was supposed to be doing an expedition in Ethiopia at the end of this year and we had a few people booked onto the trip um but we've had to cancel it because we are highly unlikely to get enough people now to to make the trip run and who knows how long this will be going on for you know we've got i've got two killy trips in september and africa seems to be a stage behind us so but the expedition companies are having issues about you know we can't cancel trips but we're having to sort of sit and wait and see how things go and it's oh really hard you know and this 
as a freelancer, it's, you know, it was like the tap was turned off. That was it. My my last DV expedition was cancelled a couple of Wednesdays ago, just before lockdown. And who knows when they're going to come back? I don't know. And that's the thing. So I'm settling into my now, my new normal for now. Um, and I've just, you know, I've got to accept that this is how it's going to be for however many months. It, it, it's for you, it sounds like it's been about acceptance. Oh, 100%. You know, there's no point. I can't get angry about it because everybody is in the same position as me. It's not just happening to me. I could I could have chosen not to work, but then how do I pay my bills? You know, I'm just coming into the busy season for me the next uh, from sort of the middle of March through to the end of November are really busy for me, whereas the first part of the year has been quite quiet that's just how my my years work out um so I'm on the back foot financially anyway and it's like well what do I do you know I don't I don't want to get into debt because of this and I can work and be because I have the skills to do it you know I can drive vans and I can pick heavy stuff up and that's all good so why and I'm in the position I'm fortunate I'm in the position to do it so you know I'm glad I can be of some use um but yeah i think flexibility in situations like this is is so important um and not blaming the government for everything you know they are dealing with something immense at the moment and there are so many people trying to get online and, and do all the claims and it's if i can just be one less person doing that to help somebody who can or who can't get out and work then yeah I'm happy with that. You know, I'd rather be try and be as self-sufficient yeah, yeah. as possible. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, Joe. Well, uh, let's move. Let's talk a little bit about you and your. Uh, let's wind back the clock and talk about your earlier adult life. And in your uh, in your words, in your early adult life, you were a no saying, height hating, comfort loving business advisor. <laughs> and and there was this moment where you discovered this true passion for the outdoors mm. T- tell me how that happened um so well, I'll take you a little bit back to when I left school I was horse mad and thought I would spend my life working with horses I thought I'd get married to a farmer and have lots of children and live you know the sort of proper rural life and I worked with horses for a few years um until my mid-20s and then that had to it came to an end because I was I'd found a couple of really bad employers and they sort of squashed my dream. And then my, my farrier boyfriend cheated on me. (laughs) So everything that I thought my life was going to be then suddenly stopped. Um, So I went and found a job in a department store and met uh one of my managers who's now one of my best friends really took me under her wing and gave me the confidence to start trying to live like we were saying earlier another new normal so I worked my way through there but really lost my confidence in life and my confidence in myself because you know life's not supposed to be like this this wasn't in the script you know but it clearly was going to be part of my story and what I found now is that with every job I've had, it's given me skills 
to not only go on to the next thing, but also to support others who have who are going through that as well. And then I was I was bored at work one day, and I was on the I was I was a um, management accountant for a for a firm of a, um, who sold semiconductors actually microchips, and I was very bored at work one day, and I was on the internet, and then this. Um, this uh, advert for a parachute jump came up for Asthma UK. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. It was in my early 30s. I can conquer my fear of heights. Absolute rubbish. So I signed up to do it and raised some money throughout the office. So I raised about £400. I think everyone was a bit shocked I was going to go and do something. And to then cut a long story short, it gradually... It wasn't that I suddenly found adventure because after that I went on a bike ride with Discover Adventure because I fought Asthma UK in Peru. And it, it was like somebody had planted a seed and each adventure was watering it a little bit more. So it was growing a little bit more. Um, but at no stage did I ever think that I would do anything around the world. You know, I thought I would because I was a business advisor then at the time. And when Discover Adventure asked me to to join the, the team of leaders or the crew, I never then thought I'd be working for them, either in the office or as a leader. And then when the next stage happened and I did move down to Salisbury and worked in the office, I never thought I'd go freelance. So I never had a, a view of what was coming next. I was really living in the now. Um, and kind of have been ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So just saying yes to that that first opportunity, mm. the skydive, and then, then yeah. there was the Discover Adventure stuff. Um, each that led on to an, uh, other opportunities and, and it, it, mm. it started to change, uh, change you as a person in, inside as well. Yeah, hugely. I was uh, not a confident individual um, for a lot of my life. Uh, but it was my job as a business advisor for Business Link. So when I started there in 2003, I would never have got up and done a seminar or done a briefing to clients or um, all of this stuff. But three weeks into the job, they said, oh, you have to stand up and do an elevator pitch and tell people what Business Link were doing. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. I'm too scared. But my manager gave me the skills to do it and gave me the confidence to say, look, everybody is in your position. They, they, nobody wants to do it, but it's what we do. So it was a sort of gradual building of this confidence um, that has really helped in what I'm doing now. And yeah, and I think I talk when I do talks to businesses or schools, I talk about champions in my life so not people who stand up there going well hey I'm the greatest but somebody who's got your back so somebody who says to you you can do this we have confidence in you um just get on and do it you know gives you a bit of a gentle or not so gentle kick up kick up the bum really um and I've had a few really really supportive people in my life who have done just that so um they see potential when when you don't and that's so important yeah so that that's really important talking about the role of whatever you want to call them champions or, or mentors mm. or yeah yeah the significant other that that is able to to really kind of mm. guide you in, in that right in the right direction 
and it's been totally transformative for you, hasn't it? That um, yeah, uh, you and you're you're now your entire career, your whole livelihood is uh, is essentially climbing mountains. Yes, I know. Who'd have thought? <laughs> it's nuts. Who'd have thought? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I do think you know. I I I say this often to pe- you know people who who say to to me, oh, it's all right for you. You've got this amazing life, and he said, and I said, well, a I've built it to be like this. You know, there's been many years and a lot of hard work. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, and I'm going to hang on to that. Um, but I am very aware that that in my head, somebody is going to tap me on the shoulder and go back in your box, love. This isn't, that's the feeling I have, you know, that I'm living this sort of just dual life. Cause I know what I used to be like. I know that I was such a insecure and not, uh, and a sort of crushingly un- unconfident, not confident, whatever the word is. Um, yeah. You know, just shy person, and 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 I'm now achieving stuff. You still feel a bit of imposter syndrome. Oh, huge! Yeah, very much so. When I, uh, you know, I was in Antarctica, like you do, over the last couple of weeks of last year, uh, 2019. And I was climbing Vincent, uh, which is the highest mountain on Antarctica as part of the seven summits. And I was sat in the mess tent with the most amazing mountaineers in the world. You know, there was, um, uh, Lakpa Rita Sherpa who's climbed Everest in, you know, highly in the teens. Um, there's a guy called Wes who, is uh has climbed Denali is guided on Denali 20, uh, 40 times has done all these new routes there's Robert Anderson who has done the seven summits multiple times mostly by new routes or solo or both you know uh there was uh Anders who's again is the most incredible mountaineer and I was just and Rolf who uh is a good friend of mine whose in CV is insane and I was thinking oh my god you know I was so but then when I'm sat with clients and they see what I've done you know they say oh I could never do what you do and I was like I get that but you could and it's just it takes time and a a lot of hard work to do it and it depends what your thing is you know nobody's climbed exactly the same mountains that I have in exactly the same timeline and I haven't for other people so I can't really compare myself or my journey with anyone else and vice versa it's you know we've all got different ones so everyone's story is their own yeah so uh, you mentioned the seven summits uh, campaign uh, i mean for those people that haven't come across it it's climbing each of the highest mountain peaks on each of the seven continents and you're you've completed peak six you've got uh, Carten's pyramid still to come i understand yeah. Which of the six so far has been the most challenging, do you think? Um, ooh, I think... Um, ooh, that's a tough one. I think I think actually Carstens has been the most challenging because I've had three expeditions cancelled. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the one you haven't done yet is, is the one the that's... The one I haven't done yeah. yet. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. So Carstens, which is there, well, the... you can see that. Yeah, the logistics a, for that sounds mad. Just just oh, to get there, get is. to base camp is yeah a major so, undertaking. 
Yeah, so in, in the beginning of 2018, I was supposed to be going in the January and I was, um, a sponsor found me for Everest and Denali. And after Everest in 2016, that's when the seven became a thing for me. I'd already done four. And, uh, and un unfortunately, my sponsor had to pull out um, in beginning of 2018. So just before I was about to pay the money and go, that was it game over um so i was then um unfortunately my father had died the the end of the year before so i spent 2018 just trying to deal with grief and all of the stuff that is surrounded by that and then the beginning of 2019 i thought right okay i can do this i can raise the money myself somehow and and get there and so um i was supposed to be going the end of September last year in 2019 and 24 hours before we were due to fly the expedition was cancelled because um, of separatist behaviour or civil unrest in West Papua uh, and the mountain was shut so like okay so we'll we'll bring it over to March 2020 um, and before COVID-19 started to get serious we were then we then had to cancel the expedition again because the civil unrest had kicked off again. So when we'll get there, I don't know. And I say we, there's a, there's a myself and a team of friends who are going. Um, so maybe towards the end of this year, seeing how it goes. For, fortunately, it's all paid for. I just need to get flights now. Yeah, um, yeah. So the agent has kept the money and we will go at some point. But yeah, number yeah. seven is... <laughs> Because yeah, it, people all people see is the, is the summit photos mm. and, and your blog yeah. and everything, and you, and you do these amazing yeah. audio recordings from from the summits that um, keeping everyone up to date. Uh, but they don't see all the training, hard work, logistics, the, the planning all goes into this uh, the, the, these uh, these summits. Yeah, hugely. And Carstens is bonkers because it's a one day rock climb, and that's all it is. But like you're saying, the logistics to get there are, are pretty phenomenal and. With Denali, I was dragging uh, Dave the tyre around the New Forest and up in North Wales or around the Brecon Beakers. Anywhere that I was working, I took um, my 23 kilo tyre with me and I was had 20 kilos on my back And because I knew that I didn't want to be the weak link of the team because on Denali, you, you're in rope teams and we're only as strong as each other. So I... You know, I did a ton of training with a, um, a local trainer who I've been going to for five years now. And the same with Everest, you know, I was, the training is phenomenal when you, when you sort of, you know, you've got this big objective and that you know that you are in charge of how fit you're going to be. It's nobody else that's in charge of that apart from you. So, you know, when I, when I get onto expeditions and clients say to me, I haven't been able to train as much as I had wanted, but you'll get me there. It's like, actually, no, <laughs> this is your own legs will get you there. And I can give you all the motivation in the world, but it's your legs and actually what's up here that counts. So, you know, I'm not taking that mantle. Yeah. It's it's so nice to hear people when they take ownership of their own physical fitness and their aptitude to, to enter these dangerous environments. I mean, I, I know you can relate to this, but the number of clients I've had on trips who've who've uh, disclosed that they've done absolutely zero training. Uh, mm. you know, they've literally gone from couch to Kilimanjaro 
whatever yeah. it is and you just think ah you know they've taken no ownership whatsoever yeah um they just yeah. expect to be kind of carried along and and um it's just no good yeah no absolutely and i think the the red the initial red nose climb in 2008 i think it was um 2009 did the the world good and not so good uh because a lot of people you know chris Miles was not the fittest client he was a heavy smoker you know and everything but so people say well if chris Miles can do it i can do it i was like have you did you see how much he trained did you see that he quit smoking did you see that he listened to everything that raj joshi said did you see that he didn't bring his ego onto the mountain did you see all of that and they were like no i was like that's what it takes to get yourself up the mountain not the oh i haven't done any training so you know i'm i'm handing you that that little mantle damn these celebrities so on on the 25th of april in 2015 joe a massive earthquake hit nepal killed 9000 people and injured 22000 and uh you had some really um intense first hand experience of this tell me tell me where you were at, at the time mm. so um i was at camp 1 on everest um oh, this is giving me goosebumps um yeah, I was at Camp One on Everest. Uh, we had it was our first rotation above the uh, Kumbu Icefall on an attempt to climb Everest, and we had arrived at Camp One probably half an hour before. And I say we; it was Rolf Ustra um, and myself. Uh, we were climbing together, and then we were with um, we had sort of base camp cooperative, so we were with some other climbers um and we all of our tents were set up and we initially just chucked our rucksacks in a tent and when we got in it we found it had a big dip in it so and you don't want to spend a couple of nights in um sort of sleeping like a banana so we were going to move to the tent next door and i was in the tent just handing out the kit to rolf when there was I can't even remember why we suddenly stopped, but we just stopped and looked at each other. And we, this rumbling was coming from all around. And Camp One is situated in the Western Coombe and you've got the west um, shoulder of Everest to one side and you've got Nupsi to the other and steep sides and big um, hanging glaciers. So it, it avalanches quite a lot. Um, and comes across Camp One. So it's not the greatest place to be in the world. And, but you know, as a mountaineer, you know where, when something releases, you can hear where it is and you have a bit of an idea about the size and whether you need to get out of Dodge pretty quickly. But this was different because this was rumbling from 360. It was coming from all around, which is really odd. Um, so we just stopped and looked at each other as if to go, this doesn't sound right or feel right and then um i was kneeling in the tent and rolf was just crouching in in the porch and suddenly the glacier beneath us just dropped i just sort of felt like it was going to disappear and because we had a dip in the tent i thought that a crevasse was going to open up and i thought that was it we were going down and being wrapped up in a tent 
for the, my last seconds of my life with Rolf is not how I want to go. So, uh, and then, and then the ground started shaking. So we both dashed out of the tent because if anything was going to come on us, we didn't want to be inside. We dashed out of the tent and the ground was, you know, properly shaking. It was almost shaking us off our feet. And we felt the wind rush, uh, which you get before you actually get hit by snow or whatever from an, from an avalanche. And we felt that all around. And then we were, we were avalanche, but not, not anything as bad as what was going on down at base camp, which is, was pretty much being obliterated. And, and it, I don't know how long it lasted for people say 30 seconds, but it felt like forever. And then it suddenly stops and we were just, Christ, what on earth? We just thought the glacier was having a, a big shift because we didn't didn't know that it was an earthquake. And then Henry, our base camp manager, got on the radio to Rob and uh, another climber in our group and, and said, are you guys OK? And we were like, what on earth just happened? And he said, base camp's been destroyed. And you can't compute that because when we left at 4 a.m. that morning, and I was handed a cup of coffee uh, by one of our Sherpas and, you know, we sort of packed up our tent and we were like, see you in a couple of days. And uh, you can't then compute that those guys are then not there because uh, three of our Sherpas were sadly killed and everything was destroyed. You know, it's just your brain just doesn't want to accept it, I don't think, because I'd never been in a situation like that. I've been in some fairly hairy weather situations i've been in a hurricane before and um or a typhoon rather and some pretty interesting weather conditions but nothing as bad as this so uh yeah and then we were just stuck there we we couldn't go down through the ice floor because it was so badly damaged and we didn't know when another aftershock or another earthquake was going to happen so we were rescued two days later on the Monday by helicopter. Yeah. yeah I mean, that that's the camp one. That is the upper limit of, mm. of the altitude that that helicopter can mm. even reach, isn't it? I mean, that's in itself, yeah. that, that flight in itself is quite a risky undertaking. Yeah, absolutely. And helicopters can get up to camp four, which is at 6,400 meters, just, you know, they could pick up a person there. Um, and nothing else. And when we were picked up from Camp One, which was um, just above six thousand meters, and you get into the helicopter, and it was basically two people, your rucksack. So we had expedition packs and maybe a tent because all of our tents were destroyed. So we took a tent down, and there was nothing in the back of the helicopter. The only thing the pilot had his seat, and he was on oxygen, and uh, you were just thrown in you know bundled into it and it, it it took us seven hours to climb up and it took us two and a half minutes to get down and when we were going back over the icefall you just saw you know that the, the ladders had been destroyed or distorted and the route was not there anymore and how no one was killed in the icefall I think just because of the time of day it was and the fact that the majority of people were out of the really gnarly bit of the Kumbu Icefall you know timing is everything and I'm I'm a great believer in sliding doors and um had it been earlier it would have been a whole different wow I mean of all the places you could have been when an earthquake hit but camp one on Everest yeah just yeah (laughs) 
yeah not it's ideal. mad and it, it not ideal not ideal at all and and when we got back to base camp we we were told that base camp had been destroyed so in your head the whole two kilometers of of Everest base camp is gone and when we were flying back down Rolf and I were like this is a bit odd because the lower third was still tented and it still looked like a normal sort of base camp village and how it looks in the climbing season and we landed and we were sort of pulled out of the helicopter by one of the American guides from another team and and I said to him where are we and not as in location but where are we on the ice fort and he said oh you're right at the very lowest section of of the the camp um but brace yourself when you go up to yours so we started walking up to our what was our camp and we were our camp was in the middle of the middle section that was middle third that was destroyed um the upper section was fine and the lower section but ours was totally destroyed and it was as if we were on a film set and somebody any minute was going to come around the corner and go cut yeah all good you know re sort of reset and everything but it was real life it was it was not a movie and we got up to our camp and because it was two days after the earthquake had struck our sherpas who had been at, at um, base camp and who weren't injured and hadn't been evacuated had set up a sort of temporary cook tent and we'd already taken a tent down with us and we just started digging for kit you know and mm, trying to mm. tidy up but yeah 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 that's just awful loss of life at, at base camp wasn't mm. there it was a really really awful yeah. season yeah mm. 19 19 people lost their lives from from sherpas to western climbers and um and to compound that the year before 16 sherpas climbing Sherpas have been killed in the avalanche, the hideous avalanche that happened in the icefall at the start of that season. So it was, you know, I think everybody was just in pure shock, to be fair. Um, you know, yeah, awful. So, yeah, I think the, 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 the main thing from that was the, the, the impact it had on, on, uh, on base camp on operations in Everest and also on the, the country as a whole, Kathmandu was pretty flattened. All of those uh, religious monuments were, were, were damaged, and um, it was it was a huge event. But let's talk about the impact that had on on your ambitions and to summer at Everest. That was clearly it was over for you that year. But fortunately, you got another chance the following year, twenty sixteen, to to summer Everest, and you had a, a second crack at, at the whip. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so uh, Rolf and I were digging for our kit for a couple of days at base camp in 2015. And I just wanted to find my mobile phone. I had it in my head that I just needed to find that so I could be in contact with my mum. And I'd already spoken to her um, via someone else's phone. And I know Marnie, uh, Rolf's wife, who, who runs 360 Expeditions, had already spoken to my mum as soon as the earthquake happened and she knew that we were okay because Rolf had phoned her on the sat phone and um but that contact no matter what you your age is it's being in contact with mum and I knew for their sanity that it was important and we were digging for kit and you kind of had an understanding of the tra trajectory of where everything had gone um whether you could find it or not was a different matter so and I was just digging and digging and, and Rolf was like come on we've got to stop now we can't there's nothing more we can do anyway just before we were due to stop 
on the Tuesday afternoon, I I dug up my mobile phone <laughs> under a meter of snow and ice, um, about a hundred or so meters from our original camp, so being buried. Um, nothing else that was in the dry bag. All my electrical kit was in a particular dry bag. Nothing else was there. So why this survived? And it was I had an iPhone six or something, and it was in a Mophie um power bank case and i think that's what saved it is the solidity of that that you know piece of equipment and uh it was a sunny day so i stuck it on a rock and let it warm up and i turned it on and then all of these messages <laughs> started coming through so i messaged my mum first and said you know uh found my phone i'm in contact and she was like that's brilliant and then a message came through from my sponsor um whose parting comments in the August before when I'd last seen him, we've spoken since, but I last saw him in the August before, was come back alive. So I think he may have been feeling a little bit, you know, off about that comment. And we had, you know, I, I went back to my tent and I put the phone on a boot to get some better signal. And uh, we were having a bit of a conversation on text message. And, and he, he said, would you go back? And without an instant... I said, yes, absolutely. Um, because it wasn't anything that we had done wrong or I'd done wrong to stop the climb. You know, I hadn't been an empty. I hadn't, it's not that I wasn't fit enough or I got sick or anything. It's just mother nature had, had had the ultimate bad day. And he said, fine, go. I will, you know, put up the funds for you to go back in 2016. And I just couldn't believe it you know I, I never thought I'd get the opportunity to climb once through sponsorship of that nature wow when you did yeah, reach that. the summit on, on 2016 how, how did it feel mm. um it was kind of bittersweet uh I mean it was incredible we had the weather <coughs> excuse me the weather was freezing cold it was very windy, but it was very clear. So we had the most incredible views, but it was also quite busy. So when people, one of the first questions that people ask me when they hear I've climbed Everest is, did you queue? <laughs> These days, it's not, that's amazing. Wow, what was <laughs> what it the queues like? like? <laughs> it was, did you queue? Yeah, yeah. it's like, the reality oh, of this, the, the world we live in, yeah, unfortunately, so, yeah. Ah, oh, and you know, the, the sort of, you know, news reporting, which was another reason I never wanted to climb Everest. I didn't want to be part of that journalistic circus. Anyway, I was. Um, and yes, we did queue. You know, we had we'd had bad weather. There'd been bad weather high up on the mountain 24 hours before we started our climb. So the people that were due to go the 17th, 18th of May, um, then had to hunker down at the South Coal. And we all, all 180 of us went up you know, it was busy. And I think the main issue, it's not the number of climbers, uh, but it's the inexperience of some of them. Um, and the lack of experience to know what to do when things don't quite go according to plan. And Everest is not the time to learn that stuff at all. Um, so that was the main issue. It was a slow climb. Um, I had music in one ear that kept me going um you know it's not oh, i say it's not a difficult climb it's not technically that difficult there are some interesting sections it's hard and it's long 
Um, so when we got to the top, also we knew that we were going to go and climb Lopsy, which is the mountain next door. So I knew as a mountaineer anyway that I had to keep it together just to get down from the summit of Everest, but also that to conserve some energy to, to go and climb Lopsy, which would have been a few hours later. Um, and you couldn't have stayed up the top for long because there were more people coming up and it's actually not that big. I mean, it's a fairly big summit, but really not not huge. But also we knew, because we were sort of probably 30 from the front um, or so, but we knew that we were then going to go past all the other climbers trying to come up, which on a skinny ridgeline is quite hairy. Yeah, I, I bet. So, it's, a, um, it's a knife yeah, edge. So it, was a great, <sighs> it was a great... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. You yeah. know, and for, for someone who hates heights, you know, I've managed to... Uh, I manage it these days you know I have varying various coping mechanisms of depending on what the situation is and I'm obviously more confident now because I have more experience and more skills but I'm still not a massive fan of airy ridgelines you know the the part of my brain is my negative Nelly is going what happens if you fall that's a long way down or don't trip up and all these negative stuff and then positive poly and I use these two characters in in my teaching is going it's fine just concentrate on the next step you know you're clipped in you've got uh sherpa support behind you 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 want to do this you know you're safe you're safe and that's really important so yeah it's uh it's an interesting climb yeah and um joe we're, we're really looking forward to uh having you at the annual world extreme medicine conference this autumn you're going to do uh, a session for us Can't wait. on your experience uh, as a uh, a leader working with a range of different medics. You've mm. seen examples of really good and bad expedition medicine. Can you give us a mm. sneak preview on a couple of things, uh, examples of perhaps bad expedition medics that, that you've come across in your career so far? Um, yeah, so I think... One in particular. Naming no names. No, 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 never naming any. <laughs> <laughs> oh, who can I bring out? No, I think um, I had a an interesting expedition. In I'm not even going to say where. Um, and I'd already um, I had two doctors on the trip, and my other leader was my co-pilot was out in country already, and I met these two doctors. Um, at Heathrow and I'd never met either of them before one was a very experienced with the company I was working for and the other one had only done a few trips and no overseas with us he'd done a, a an overseas trip with another company and so I said hello to the first one because we just happened to meet up first and it was like oh it's so cool to meet you because I'd heard a lot about him and you know um and then when I met the next one his opening sort of greeting wasn't hi how are you he said I'm an altitude junkie I was like wow that's a that's interesting place to start I was like oh that's fantastic so what you know what have you done he said I've climbed Kilimanjaro and that was it so I was a little bit perplexed as to where this sort of uh large sort of statement had come from and it, it almost puts you on a little bit of a back foot and a bit of an edge because I'm not 
uh, I don't like ego or this sort of arrogance of I'm the greatest and I'm the most important. Like we were saying earlier, you know, everybody plays their part on an expedition. Um, I'm not the most important person in the trip. Doctors are, in my line, in my eyes, way more important than me, but we all do a job together. Um, and this particular individual was maybe exceeding that uh, role. I think. Um, and then out of that came all sorts of other things that um, he was going to brief the clients about their sexual conduct on the trip. So it was uh, it was an interesting dynamic. And I think a lot of it came out of nerves and anxiety from this particular individual that um, he just didn't really know how to deal with. So it came out Anxiety comes out in many different ways, doesn't it? Insecurities. And it, it came out in a, in a bit of a negative form. So we, we tried to sort of coach him through that. It was difficult at times, but... Yeah. And um, uh, w one thing I've often found is mm. um, or, or, or other leaders have, have fed back to me about medics that they've worked with is there are some medics who don't interact uh very helpfully with the with the clients perhaps don't appreciate what it's like to be a client and to be entering into a challenge like this and perhaps don't show the level of compassion perhaps uh can you think of any examples of medics you've worked with perhaps were slightly out of touch with with what, what they needed to be doing yeah i think um a variety of different ones just from the the lack of empathy you know um and particularly if somebody you know, when you came and did Killy with me, it was your first time on the mountain. You were very aware that you could get sick as well as the clients. But you were in a position where you had more knowledge than them initially about what could go right and also what could go wrong. So you were sort of, you took on, you took on the information of yours, you know, that you gave yourself and you use that. And I've worked with a few other medics where they've, felt that they are invincible and as much as I can say no you're not and they're like but I I know my stuff and I know I'm not going to get sick I'm like you are an individual and a human being everybody can get sick if they don't respect altitude um and they don't you know and I think they're because they're struggling to keep themselves together their their levels of empathy with the clients or diminished and sometimes I've had to take over a situation where just through anxiety or whatever else you know the, the 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 doctor the medic on the trip has maybe not dealt with a client as empathetically as we would have liked um because everybody's in a state of anxiety so you've got this sort of sort of underlying um level of people are very short fused can be very short fused so um yeah i i prefer medics that are very straight like you were and you know a lot of others i've dealt with they're very straightforward they will tell me how they feel um so i'm aware of of how they are as much as the other way um and you know they're very honest um and i think that's so important you know it's interesting that that whole kind of demeanor, that professional demeanor that we cultivate as as medics in our in our usual clinics or um, uh, uh, wards, we are, we are trying to project 
authority. We're trying to project uh, these professional boundaries that, that we're, we've got this, you know, we want people to trust us. And I think when you translate that role into an expedition, it, you ha- there's a new level of vulnerability that is attached to that. And I think there's it's so fascinating to see how different people manage that. And uh, it's interesting to, to hear your reflections on how that that vulnerability, that the anxiety that generates can manifest sometimes in some very unhelpful ways. And I think it, it's so powerful to be open with yourself and the other the members of the team you know, about that. And, and um, hopefully that that can open the channel of communication. It can enable you to rate, take proper care of yourself so that you're in a position of strength going going into this and you you can you can handle the 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 demands of the expedition but also that you're you're not just trying to be some kind of superhero and you're not just trying to show face uh, not not show face all the time and yeah yeah and i think that's so important humility and vulnerability are two of the most important um prerequisites i think for a leader and a medic in on expeditions and it's not you know it's not letting people in to the depths of your personality but it's showing that you are human and that you feel things um you know and because people say you know they're like oh you must be really hard and this that you know i said no i don't if i if i don't drink enough water i'm still going to get a headache and i know how to put it right and i know what i've done wrong but i'm still going to get a headache if I push myself too hard or I don't eat enough, I know I'm going to feel sick because my body needs a, con- you know, a sort of nice steady supply of food in whatever levels. I said, so I'm not, I'm not a superhuman, you know, I, I still feel like that. And I think sometimes the most trickiest moments is when I have medics on trips who are clients. And if I'm working on my own and I don't have a medic with me, then obviously I'm, you know, as much of a a medic as I'm trained. And I had a situation a few years ago where I was working on my own and I had a a couple of doctors on the trip who had never been to altitude. They'd never studied it. Um, So that I was in a more advanced position of knowledge than they were. And they were questioning me, not through wanting to know what was going on, but they said to me, but you're not medically trained and we know more than you. And I was like, okay. And I was dealing with quite a tricky medical situation at the time that I had totally under control. I knew exactly what I was doing. And we evacuated the client and she got down the mountain, was much better and safe and well. And it all happened very quickly without any sort of pre-warning. So when you're in that situation, you don't need somebody undermining you saying, you sure you know what you're doing you know when they can clearly see it's just i think from their institution they felt that they they needed to be involved which is fine i think if they come up to me and said do you need any help you know let us know if this and so i think there's ways of doing stuff um that is really important and i am more than happy to use people's skills where they're needed you know um so yeah, it's really interesting you you say that, Jake. I think as medics, many of us are natural fixers. Yeah, we uh, we, lo- we want to just dive in and be like, <laughs> yeah. right, what do we need to do here? Yeah. But sometimes where there's a clear uh, there's a clear kind of leadership structure in that team, particularly if you're a medic that isn't the designated medic for that group, I think we've got to be really careful how we uh, how we deploy our skills uh, and that that's done through the right channels and 
um, to complement what you're already doing in, in, in the, the local leadership, the, the uh, local porters and guides. Uh, you know, you can't just wade in and, and, uh, and try and assume command and, and tell everyone what to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I had it on a recent Killy trip where I was working on my own and we were passing another group who had a, a doctor with them. And I was already dealing with one of my um, crew who was um, experiencing sort of cold-like symptoms. And it wasn't, I know we put everything down to altitude until we prove it otherwise, but everything, you know, altitude-wise, he was fine, all of the the checks and scores and everything. And um, he just happened to mention to his friend who was a guide with the other team, oh, I'm just feeling a bit under the weather. So then the other team got involved. I'm like, right, back off, please. (laughs) It would have been nice if you had come and asked. Um, But I've got this covered. And if I need support, I know where to come. And I think that is from other teams' perspectives. That's really important. Because I have, you know, with when we've been working with Discover Adventure and other teams have found out we have doctors on the trips. I don't know if it happened on ours, but I know it's happened on other trips where clients have come to us and said, we need some help. And the doctor can only do so much, you know, but we're not going to say if someone needs a lot of medical attention, actually, no, you know. So it's just, it's understanding how to work with each other without just, like you said, wading in and going, I've got this, I can fix it. It's sort of looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. So, yeah that awareness of what's going on uh, around mm. you and yeah um yeah so joe i've um uh, yeah, if anyone wants to hear more about how you can be a good or bad <laughs> medic on an expedition and joe's yes. work you've worked with hundreds of medics over yes. your time you've got uh, some real insight into mm. what good medicine on expedition looks like mm. come to her session at this year's conference i think it's going to be really good now i've collected mm. together four of my favorite Joe Bradders Bradshaw quotes. <laughs> I'm going to throw them at you and I okay. want you to tell me what each of these means and, yeah. and what its significance has in your life. So okay. the first one is choose your mood. Yes. Yeah. So I came up with that when I started guiding because you can feel especially I do a lot about at altitude and when I when to begin with when you're guiding and you don't get much sleep and you can wake up in the morning and you're quite grumpy but you can do nothing about the sleep you haven't had until that night you know so I could either choose that day to be really grumpy because I haven't had enough sleep or I can choose to accept that that's happened and I choose, I can then choose to go, right, how do I deal with it? I can either be really grumpy and really annoying or actually just get on with it, just suck it up and get on with it. And I know I'll get some sleep. And I really think about that when I'm replying to somebody as well, who is being maybe a little bit aggressive towards me from a state of anxiety. So what we were saying earlier is I can either go into that sort of child, child mode or I can take a step back and, you know, not react with that two second part of your brain that just wants to click in. So I think it has quite a wide ranging meaning for me. Um, yeah, it's it's when you start practicing it, it's like anything, practicing good or bad habits, they, they become, you know, good or bad things, they can become a habit and just mm. 
putting that it's like a little sort of switch in my head I think yeah yeah absolutely it's so interesting how on these trips how people start snapping at each other and uh you know tensions start to kind of uh, ramp up uh, and I think uh, for me, what that that comment um, means is it's all about the power that exists in the gap between stimulus and response, between something that agitates you and uh, arouses some kind of emotion in you and then how you then uh, react to that. And I think the more you can just, you can say, okay, this, this situation shit, I'm at altitude, I feel like shit, <laughs> which is like most of the time. Uh, but I, I actually have the power to say, how I respond to that and, and how I how that informs my behavior and it's really quite amazing when you realize that isn't it when you, oh. you kind of like okay yeah it's okay I feel like shit but I, I'm just going to kind of hold that and yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to tell the rest of the world about that all yeah. the time and yeah. and really have a go at everyone because because I'm not really in a good place yeah 100 percent. and also being honest about it you know if you're not in a good place and you don't want anyone near you which is harder for a leader but and a dog mm. but you know as a client or as a as a on a personal expedition just say to people right i just need need half an hour a day whatever just i need that space and i think that goes goes back to the humility and vulnerability is people see you're human they're much them they 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 bond to you much better you know yes show strength 100% especially in what we do is they people want leadership you're there for a reason but showing that you're human is really important as well and sucking it up you know i've chosen this job or i've chosen to climb everest i've chosen to put myself in this position um so i just need to get on with it you know yeah what happens inside is a different thing let's move on to quote number two yes <laughs> quote number two joe is think it don't say it yes absolutely so this i heard this from uh, Rolf Ustra, who's a very good friend of mine and head guide, owns 360 Expeditions. I've done a huge amount of climbing with him over the years. And uh, some people love stories and some you choose the words that come out of your mouth. Um, and sometimes it's best to not let them come out. Um, so when, you know, or even... So on expeditions, I have this little thing uh, where I say to clients in the initial briefing, you know, if you've had a bad night through bodily function expulsions of, please don't <laughs> sit at breakfast telling everybody because you're then going to put everybody else off their breakfast. And I really want everyone else to eat some breakfast. Um, so, you know, we, we have this sort of... Um, saying in the briefings you know it's it's almost the two second rule is does this really need to come out of my mouth the words nothing else at that particular time or can I save it for later or can I save it for private I think you know sometimes you listen to what people are saying the stories that they're coming out with and just because they want to fill a void or fill a for the you know silence and it's like sometimes silence is golden <laughs> so, yes yeah <laughs> less is more <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know exactly what you mean there, Jam. I certainly, some of my earlier trips, I found when I really got on with the clients, I found that I relaxed a little bit more. And you find that some of the humor, when humor is an essential part of, of morale uh, in, a, in these trips, 
but it can sometimes start to kind of degrade a little bit and 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 you can i think you can find where the boundaries are quite quickly and especially it's in, they're so intense aren't they you all you're all kind of thrown in together it's complete strangers at the airport and in, within a couple of days it feels like you've known each other for five years and you're just bantering away and you can easily start saying stuff that you actually really shouldn't and i think yeah. having that self-control and self-awareness to to just be okay hang on a sec i need to just <laughs> i need to rein this in add now to the conversation or... <laughs> yeah because once absolutely. you've said something it can't some... be unsaid yeah 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. totally. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's very good. And um, okay, how about this one? The world is like a book. Those that do not travel read only the front page. Yes, I I read that quote years ago when I started. I, I, I say years ago. It was ten years ago when I started as as a freelancer, and I wasn't particularly well travelled before uh sort of the mid 2000s because i'd been to new zealand uh in god when was it now oh, 1990 um when i worked with horses i spent six months on the on the horsey circuit out there but that's basically what all i'd done and so you just see such a limited view of the world you know you can see it social media wasn't there then but you know you can see it on the news and but if you don't get to see it yourself, you don't get to really delve into what the book is all about. And I think, you know, getting out there and having the confidence to go and explore, even just in your local area, like, I mean, we can't explore anywhere at the moment, but in your, there's so many places. When I've been driving around in my Tesco delivery van, I've been going to places I didn't even know existed around here. And I've lived in this area for 12 years now. So you know, it's it's like open the book, go and see what's inside because you might actually like it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure many of our listeners who've travelled will sing the, uh, or will um, uh, be able to talk about their benefits to them of, of travelling and mm. how it really opens your mind and, and how important that is. Oh, massively. Um, yeah. yeah, 100%. And I feel, you know, when, when we go and do expeditions and like in Nepal so when we went and did Everest base camp we flew from Kathmandu to Lukla and then we flew back at the end of it and you just see bits of Kathmandu from the route that takes you to the hotel and then I know you went exploring a lot but a lot of people don't they stay in Tamil and it's all very safe and very touristy they don't really get out um <clears throat> whereas these days you have to drive five hours out of Kathmandu to another airport well, I say an airport's a runway and a building, um, and you fly to Lukla and back from there. So you get to see Nepal actually happening. And the first um, group of clients that did that with me um, said, oh, it's amazing, because we actually feel like we saw a side of Nepal we never would have done. You know, the plastic issues they have or the way they live and where all the sort of shacks and shops are and the vehicles and the craziness of it all they would never have got to see that um and as much as i hate that um interesting ride uh it's so important i think it's so important yeah especially with these the, the, some of these commercial trips that are sold the, the itineraries are quite tight there may be seven eight day trips quite with a long haul travel 
people are um, bussed from the airport to the hotel and then they take into the mountain, do the, do the climb, come back and out. And they really get any experience of that country. Um, but for me, when I've traveled, the, the, some of the most powerful experiences I've had have been where there's been a free day and I've been able to do little micro adventures, you know, just go on a little hike uh, to, to a nearby mountain or, or just wander around the city and, and see stuff. And it's just some of those kind of slightly unplanned but organic experiences that you yeah. can have along the side of what is supposed to be the main event that can sometimes yeah. be the most rewarding. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And really empowering to people as well. You know, it makes travel has changed me so much. You know, I am quite a few years ago, I stopped buying new stuff unless I absolutely have to. So I buy secondhand clothes now uh, from Oxfam online. Um, I buy secondhand furniture because why not? Um, you know, I I rarely buy anything new because stuff is already made. So why not reuse it where I can, you know, where I can? I'm, I'm so much um, more aware about environmental issues and about plastic problem and all of this sort of stuff. And, and as much as I travel on aircraft which is bad you know it's putting other things right in your life and not continuing with the behaviors you've done so much we're so society as a rule is is about getting the newest and the best and the biggest and the most expensive and the xyz and you know it's so wrong it's so wrong it's just it's just, and i think what we're going through now may hopefully change some of that I don't know I hope so yeah, yeah. I mean I, I certainly really feel it like you for me travel's been a huge part of my life and it's very strange not being able to I've also got a, a 10 month old at home that's been a bit of an issue with, with regards to being able to travel but certainly a global pandemic is certainly going to ground you and it's um, really made me reflect on how amazing it is and how lucky we are to be able to see so much of the world that we have done what privilege that is and increasingly especially with 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 climate change um it's been tainted with guilt going to these places and burning all that jet fuel and i like you i've made changes in other areas of my life so that hopefully i can use all my carbon credits on on uh, on air miles on flights <laughs> so yeah. i've got pretty much gone vegan i've i'm buying everything secondhand i'm cycling everywhere i'm doing everything i can in every other area of my life just so that i can get on the odd flight and and, and i know that's not enough i know that, uh, that i'm still unfortunately killing the planet by doing that and i don't quite know how to reconcile that completely in my head yeah. yet but I know yeah. it's weird because I always wondered, you know, when I get on a flight, I wondered how the world in, would benefit environmentally from like 24 hours of nobody traveling anywhere. Well, we're seeing that now, you know, there's, I think commercial flights are all but stopped. There's obviously um, cargo going around the places, but, you know, seeing things like the canals in Venice are clear water now, and there's dolphins in them, apparently, according to the news, you know, and it's nature can get back so quickly. And it will be interesting to see how this changes, whether people go back to how they were, or whether people will travel less anyway, because they don't want to be surrounded by so many people. I don't know, it will be and how the environment benefits you know it has to uh, wow. somehow yeah it must do, after so. this pandemic the only thing that will have changed is everything yes absolutely yeah 
So final quote, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these are your words, not mine. Don't yes. be a dick. Yes. But you were very much in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so I... Oh, so I've kind of been having thoughts, you know, it's very much as like, oh, come on, just don't be an idiot. And I, uh, I was going to do some volunteering um, for Team Rubicon. Um, and in 2017, I went to their training, uh, training weekend. And it, it back then, only three years ago, it was very military led organisation. Um, and it's changed a bit now. But and, and their mantra was don't be a dick. So don't put yourself in situations where you're endangering not only yourself, but others. Don't make the situation worse um, and all of this. And for me, it's when I'm guiding, rather than saying outwardly to a client, don't be a dick, which is a bit rude. I weave the, the saying into things that I've done in the past, you know, uh, where I've been a bit of an idiot. Um, and everybody gets everybody gets what I'm saying and and then they start using it on themselves and I've heard it you know somebody in a in a tent who's maybe a bit late and for breakfast or and hasn't got up on time or what have you and they're like oh don't be a dick such and such and it's it's like oh okay and I think it's um a really important um sort of a little bit of a, a stopper for us to remind ourselves that you know, everybody can be a bit of an idiot and that it's just trying to limit those numbers and not nobody's perfect and everybody get, you need to be able to, to make mistakes in your life in order to learn. But it's then what you do with the mistakes that, you know, makes a difference. So, and yeah. it's interesting. It, it it taps into this idea. I think we all know when we're being a dick, maybe not oh. necessarily at the time, but if we reflect mm. on the day's events, we can usually sit back and say, yeah, I was, I was a dick to that guy. I, I yeah. didn't really <laughs> handle yeah. that very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's really, absolutely. it's just all, all about self-awareness and uh, how, how important that is, especially on trips when you're at altitude, you're in it's a confined group uh, and you're under uh, extreme stress. Um, you've just got to be very, very aware of, of every action that you, you have and the impact that has on, on, on the team. Mm, Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's always, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And you can, you can say stuff in and not reacting to stuff. And, and actually I've had, I've apologized to clients when maybe I've said the right thing, but in the wrong tone. Um, and or it's, it's had the right intention, but it's just come out a little bit incorrectly. And I think that builds up trust even more. And, and I've had clients come and apologize to me, you know, when they've really not been that pleasant. And, and I will, I heard another um, leader say this, if somebody's being very unpleasant to you is that nobody deserves to be spoken to like that, because it really puts onus back on the person who is being very unpleasant um as well as it's not my fault but it is my problem you know is is sort of gaining ownership of what's going on that they know that you haven't created the situation but you are going to try and put it right and um and i think again it goes back to the humility and vulnerability it's it's knowing when you're either in the wrong or something needs to be put right and it's how you do it so 
yeah it's we're all human at the end of the day we're all totally so and actually do you think maybe yeah. sometimes it's it's actually okay to be a dick because oh uh, yeah you know we, we all do it we are only human um when our chimp brains are activated we we do things that we shouldn't have done but then the, the actually the thing that matters is 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 recognizing that and then rectifying it and actually going back to that person and and fessing up and saying I, I my behavior was unacceptable or i i could have handled this differently can we start again and when i've been able when i've been able to do that and not as much as i'd like to have done if i'm honest when i've i've had enough humility to do that it's it never gone badly for me i i really think that's um that's something we should all be doing more of yeah yeah 100% 100% it's just yeah it's, yeah i can't say anything more to that because you've said it all but yeah it's very much so yeah okay joe so um let's let's move back to the kind of time we're in and a key aspect of this pandemic for medics on the front line is is facing the unknown you know suddenly having to adapt and overcome and are there any any particular insights or lessons from mountaineering that you could offer to healthcare workers on the front line as as they're confronting this any kind of transferable Um, lessons that that you think would help them I think just realizing that you're not in this alone um, and asking for help, you know, there's even the best mountaineers in the world, when they go and do things solo, they're not actually on their own. There's a backup, there's a team backing them up from somewhere or, or there's somebody on the end of the phone. And, and I think, you know, you, if you're out seeing patients house to house and you're putting yourself in, difficult situations that way or whether you're working in hospital in in the in the ICU is that is relying on others and being honest I think it's so important when we were saying earlier is about being honest and um it's going to have a massive impact mentally on so many frontline staff Uh, and, and it will take time to filter out and I know that from being in the earthquake and how long it actually took for the for the sort of um, you know the this uh, grief response and the growth post traumatic growth. So rather than being on post traumatic stress, you go into post traumatic growth, and I think it takes a long time for that to happen. And it's being honest with yourself as well as other people um you know yeah it's I just I'm in awe of because like you I've I have a huge amount of friends who are medics and on the front line and doing the most unbelievable work always but more so at the moment and it for us it's checking in with them and making sure they're okay you know um so yeah keep keep going because this will this will finish at some point um, but a bit of self-care is really important as well. Um, you know, nobody's infallible, as we've seen. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. One one thing that I've certainly learned from our conversation is I, I, you went from 2015 being at Camp 1 during the biggest earthquake uh, that Nepal has seen uh, and, and you know, the whole Kumbu Icefall being completely remoulded and... Uh, 19 people dead on uh, base camp it must have seemed so in uh, unfeasible at that point that you could ever summit everest that was your kind of dream uh, and yet you dusted your your phone off 
from under the snow and um and suddenly your sponsor gave you another lifeline and and a year later there you were standing on the summit and for me what that shows is how things can change and how things appear right now is not how they'll be in 6 12 18 months time and i think we have to keep that in our mind with this pandemic because this is just a period in time and one thing that's keeping me positive during this is that uh, that I, that notion that this is just what's happening right now and things will be different again in in the future and, and that though the, the possibilities are going to open up again for us and we've just got to ride through this period make the best of it that we can uh, and we just know that things are not going to be like this forever yeah yeah thankfully and, and and it gives us you know resilience is a huge thing in life anyway and you don't gain resilience until you go through the tougher stuff and as horrendous as this is it is building a massive resilience in all of us you know and everybody's dealing with it in their own way and probably it's bringing out things in people they never knew they had or they're much stronger than they thought they were ever going to be or much more adaptable or flexible or what have you. And, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah. And, and I'm delivering groceries for Tesco and we're being clapped as we drive through villages and we're being thanked on every single call, which is, you know, virtually unheard of. And, and, and all we are doing is, is, putting groceries on people's doorsteps we're not allowed to go into the houses um as as the delivery drivers used to but it's a very everybody is playing a very small part in a very big picture um some have bigger roles than others um with with the um, nhs but a friend of mine who, who said um the other day that he was really struggling with not having a purpose in life at the moment. You know, he's, a, he's an adventurer and he's, he's, um, all his work has been canceled for the time being. And I said, your purpose is to stay at home. That's your purpose. And that's what you need to hang on to. And I think it's really breaking it down to the sort of, it's the next footstep that counts. I think we can't look too far into the future. It's what is right in front of us at the moment you know they were talking on the news about exit strategies and everything and it's like god can't we just concentrate on what is happening here and now because we don't know when the exit is going to be you know and it's i think that's really important so it's the Absolutely. next step we have to make the best of of where we are mm. right now and i, I just mm. think that's amazingly adaptable view joe that your your first bit of adaptation in life was was moving from the kind of business world into the outdoor mountaineering world uh and and now you're moving from outdoor mountaineering into delivery driving uh you know you've <laughs> uh, turned on a dime you've you've yeah <laughs> you've you've adapted was... and overcome in, in in whatever way you can and i know it's not perfect and you know it's maybe not what you would choose to be doing right now but you're doing it with good grace uh and you're recognizing the the, the value that that has right now yeah yeah, hundred percent. And you know, everything that I've done in my past, or the, certain sections of it. So I used to be in retail. I, I managed an early learning centre um, many years ago, and, and was in a department store before. All that customer service stuff, which is what we do on a daily basis when we're guiding, anyway, it just comes back. And it's having that that history that's helped. The driving. You know, I got my HGV license when I was nineteen in New Zealand for you know very crazy reason, but I never knew then that actually that HGV license, even though it didn't transfer to the UK, I could drive the seven and a half ton trucks with Discover Adventure and all the vans. And now that I'm driving 
not a very big van, but it's big enough. The Tesco in teeny tiny lanes and everything. It all it all has a purpose, you know, at some point along along the line. So, you know, yeah. And life's great and knowing, plan and know, that it has for it us all. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. knowing when to, to not say <laughs> stuff to clients if they're or customers now, you know, if they're sort of having a go at you because they can't get delivery slots. It's not being that child, Charles. Yeah. It's it's like take a step back, two second rule is so important. So yeah. But yeah. Joe, if if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Mm. So I'm I have a website which is joebradshaw.co.uk and there's links through to my Facebook page um, and Instagram on there. I'm not on Twitter anymore um, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So um, and I never thought I would say this, but you can Google my name and I come up. Who knew? Um, but yeah, my website has got it's it's being remodelled at the moment by a very good friend, um, so it's going to look even sparklier than it than it is. Um, has done in the past um so yeah just just you know follow me on linkedin instagram facebook wherever you fancy and uh yeah keep up my my blogs i blog quite a lot and they they've they sort of you know it's sort of very interesting to see where the blogs are taking me at the moment it's not all about the mountains so mm. yeah yeah absolutely no i i found your blogs really interesting jane it's it's your very candid you really reflect on you know what that experience what that uh, adventure for you how that how that um shapes you as a person and 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 what it means um for you uh, with, with your sort of charity work and 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 some of your background and and some of the things that you you've, you've dealt with over your life and it's yeah they're really powerful so yeah definitely check them out yeah, well, Joe, we really we wish you the best from from when we look forward to seeing you at the conference. We hope that you're you're not thwarted again with Carten's Pyramid by this pandemic, and that you get up there and complete the seven summits. Yeah, hopefully. Well, if 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 things pan out this year, by the time we get to the conference, then hopefully I will have been stood on the seventh of the seven. But who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's in the hands of the gods yeah it will happen at some point yeah well great chatting to you joe thanks so much thank you yeah uh, brilliant thanks will <laughs>